Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Tonight's show was a literal train wreck. My MacBook broke, and I had to get it repaired. Oh, also, I'm talking train wrecks. Tonight, I discuss the Ashtabula, Ohio train disaster and the Ham Indiana Circus train wreck. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Welcome back to the show. We made it through one episode, and we're on the episode two. I once again want to apologize for the delay. I went, I opened my MacBook up Wednesday during the day. I usually rec- try to record this on Wednesday nights when everyone's asleep. Then I will edit it Thursday, Friday, depending on what happens, and then try to get it out by Friday at the latest. So I went to open it, and it was working fine Tuesday night. Open it up, black screen. The taskbar was doing some stuff, but it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. So I figured, eh, maybe it froze when it was in sleep mode. I've had that happen before. My phone's done it, and the quickest fix is just let it die and recharge because it has to reboot itself. But I took it down to the Apple Store. Uh, they did all the 
all the PRAMs and all that great fun resets and nothing happened. So we had to send it off and get it repaired. And a few delays later and $800 later, the MacBook is back. And we can catch up and get everything back on schedule. Um, tonight's show is about train wrecks and uh, the ghostly happenings and stories around these train wrecks. We're going to start with the Ashtabula train disaster. This I've known about for a long time, and it's kind of funny how it, you know, came about, how it got on my radar. Back in the golden days, the old days of high school, I was looking, I had a couple of websites, badly designed, old, but informative websites about haunted places and creepy places in Ohio. And there's this one image that always stuck in my mind. And that was this image of this very just desolate snow. It was a snow-filled covered, you know, snow-filled image of this very long, narrow train bridge. A train trussle, I think they call it, because it's it's really narrow. It's like it's just the tracks. You can't walk on it or anything. It was always a really creepy picture. And for years, I jumbled it up my mind. I thought that was part of the Ashtabula train disaster. So when I go to look it up, I'm like, hey, I'm going to do that for the show. I go and look it up, and uh, it's not. And I think I've done that before. I always forget which one it is. It's a completely different uh, train wreck. So when I got everything ready to go for this episode, all the show notes were done, everything was in line, all I had to do was record, I did figure out, I did stumble upon that image. I found it because the website that it was that it was on, I mean, I think it's long gone. A lot of those aren't around anymore. There's a couple of them, but I couldn't find it. I did find it, and it's the, it's the River Styx Bridge is the one I was thinking of. So I think what I'm going to do is these two stories that we're going to do tonight have some ghost stories associated with them, but no ghost train stories, oddly enough. And the River Styx story does have a ghost train. So I'll dig up another ghost train story, and we'll do another train wreck episode but they'll both have ghost trains in them. I think that'll work. So yeah, tonight we're talking train wrecks. The Ashtabula train disaster and the Hammond, Indiana circus train wreck. And we're going to get into that right after a quick promo from the Nothing Ever Happens in Canada podcast. But of course, stuff does happen in Canada, and Canadian Girl is here to tell you all about it. If you like myths, legends, and just good old stories, come join me, Canadian Girl, over at Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, where I try to find out what's going on over here. We look for lost gold, we chase mermaids, look for sunken ships, discover stories about amazing women in Canadian history, blow up mountains, and just recently, we were hunting for giants. And they say nothing ever happens here. You can find me on most of your podcast apps, and most likely, where you found this awesome podcast that you're listening to now. Again, it's Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, and I'm Canadian Girl. I hope you'll join me on my next adventure. And we're back. And here we go. The Ashtabula train disaster has many names. The Ashtabula bridge disaster, 
the Ashtabula Hora, the Ashtabula River Railroad disaster, but whichever name you choose, they all refer to the terrible derailment that occurred in Ashtabula, Ohio on December 29, 1876. The railroad bridge in question was owned by the Lakeshore and Michigan Railroad. The bridge was designed by architect Amasa Stone. More on him later. The engineer of the bridge, Charles Collins, never trusted Stone's design. He called it too experimental. He claimed his braces were too small. However, he continued on with the project under pressure from the company. And the reason it was under pressure from the company is because Amasa Stone wasn't just the architect, he was also the CEO of the railroad company. So Collins was probably caught between a rock and a hard place. It was snowing hard on the afternoon of December 29, 1876, when the number 5 train of the Pacific Express left Erie, Pennsylvania. Socrates and Columbia, the two locomotives were hauling 11 rail cars and carrying 159 passengers. It was at around 7.30 p.m. that night when the number 5 train collapsed into the frozen Ashtabula River when the rail bridge gave way. The lead locomotive, it made it across the bridge. The second locomotive and all 11 cars plunged into the ravine below. The train was a mere 1,000 feet from the railroad station. That's it. 1,000 feet. That's nothing. In all, 92 passengers were killed in the wreck or later succumbed to their injuries. This included gospel singer Philip Bliss. 48 of the dead were burnt and otherwise unrecognizable. 62 other people were injured. By the time the townspeople made it to the bridge, a fire was raging. This was caused by the heating stoves and lamps setting fire to all the wooden cars. The heavy snow didn't help the fire brigade and the townspeople who were out there lending a hand. Survivors could be seen pulling themselves out of the frozen waters below the now-collapsed train bridge. The snow, coupled with the town already unprepared for such a disaster, they couldn't even get water to put the fire out. I mean, they're surrounded by water, but you probably couldn't get to it. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's water surrounded by flame. So this made rescue attempts very difficult. Survivors of the wreck were carried or transported on sleds to nearby houses or hotels. At the time, there wasn't a hospital in Ashtabula. After the wreck, there was a 68-day-long coroner's jury's investigation. It came to the conclusion that Stone's design, which essentially adapted a wooden Howe truss design into an all-metal one, was indeed the fault for the collapse. They found that the bridge members were not fastened together. They simply rested on one another, which works for wood, but doesn't work so much for steel. As I mentioned earlier, Stone wasn't just the architect. He was president of the railroad company. Seven years after the Ashtabula train disaster, Stone would commit suicide. Many believe that the guilt of the collapse and his failing health led to him killing himself. Collins, however, the engineer, was found dead in his bedroom from a gunshot wound to his head just days after giving his testimony to the Ohio State Legislature. At first, it also seemed to be a suicide, but some police reports stated that the wound did not seem to be self-inflicted. Documents found in 2001 and an examination of his skull would later prove that he was murdered. 
which is pretty interesting. It would be not. I'm going to try to look into that more to see if anything came from that investigation that have something to do with you know a, a a angry relative of someone that died in the train disaster. Was it completely unrelated, or was it suicide at all? I don't know. It would be fun to find out, and if I find out, I'll let, I'll let everyone know. 25 of the unrecognizable dead from the train wreck were buried in a mass grave in Ashtabula's Chestnut Grove Cemetery. Charles Collins' crypt is mere feet away from that mass grave. And if you visit Ashtabula, if you go to the Chestnut Grove Cemetery, it's a big obelisk marker. I think actually his is a big obelisk marker too. So they're probably pretty easy to find. I'll, I'll include a picture in the show notes or on the website probably that you can check out and go for there. Like I said, no ghost trains, but there are uh, ghost stories associated with this disaster. It is said that Chestnut Grove is haunted by not only the ghosts of the train wreck victims, but also by Collins himself. People have reported seeing people in period winter clothing, carrying luggage, wandering around the cemetery. There is also sometimes a strange charred smell. Some have also said that ghosts will gather around the bridge on the anniversary of the wreck. And the anniversary of the wreck is December 29th, so a little far off, but rolls around in your Ashtabula area. Go, uh, go check out that site and see what you find. Some good did come from the train disaster. Like I said earlier, there wasn't a hospital in Ashtabula at the time, but after this, there was a hospital built. Also, steam heat was adopted some ten years later to heat train cars instead of stoves. As well, in 1887, a federal system was set up to formally investigate all fatal railroad accidents. So steam heat was a big thing. It was the big deal. Before that, you just had stoves and oil lanterns just in in the cars, you know? And they're made out of wood, and who knows what else is in them. These are passenger cars, but if they weren't... Pa- they could have been livestock cars full of straw. You know, just a Kindle box on wheels. These early trains were just ready to go up. So, it's, it's, it's a big deal. It really paved the way for safety on the railroads, more safety as I'm sure a lot of these early train wrecks did. The bridge is still there today. I will post a more recent picture, a modern-day picture, in the show notes that I dug up. Uh, as Obviously, I don't believe it's used anymore. I'm pretty sure it was rebuilt, because it's, it's there. Like If you look at a modern picture, it's not collapsed. So it had to have been repaired at some point in time, and I'm pretty sure that it is now defunct that's the correct nomenclature for that there's a lot I'm actually more interested I think in the aftermath of this than than the actual events of what happened to Stone Stone is also buried close by I think the next town over he isn't buried in uh, Chestnut Grove it's a very similar crypt I think as well I think he's also got an obelisk it's probably a big deal early yeah probably they were all obelisks if you could afford it back then I would like to dig into that more. That would, oh God, I feel like that would almost require like a trip to Ashtabula. Like that feels like real research. 
Like, I've got to get to a library, i got to talk to somebody. But that would be a fun update to an, a future episode. I'll see if I can make it happen. See what I can do. Now let's move on to Hammond, Indiana, which is very close to Gary, Indiana, which is very close to Chicago. That'll all come important later. I think I heard about this one. Oh, this had to have been on a Discovery show or a history show. It was on TV. I think that's the first time I heard about it. One of those shows. Maybe Engineering Disasters. Or, or Modern Marvels when they would do their Engineering Disaster shows. But Hammond, Indiana is interesting because it involves the circus. During the last months of the First World War, on June 22, 1918, a horrific accident occurred near Hammond, Indiana. The 26 cars of the Hagenbach Wallace Circus were holding the performers and other circus workers as it chugged ahead to Hammond, where the circus had a show later that week. Around 4 a.m., Michigan Central Engineer Alonzo Sargent was at the helm of an MC troop train. Alonzo hadn't gotten any sleep in almost 24 hours. Sargent was an experienced railman, but this night he had fallen asleep. He missed the automatic signals and a warning from the brakeman of the circus train itself. His much faster train, which was hauling nothing but empty cars, slammed into the stop circus train, which had stopped to check a hot box on one of the flat cars. Uh, what a hot box is, is it's a train slang for when an axle uh, overheats, gets hot, starts to melt, starts to malfunction. Sarge's engines tore through the much slower circus train. The circus train was a much older train. So you remember like three minutes ago, I hope you do, it was three minutes ago, when I said that uh, trains used to use stoves and lanterns and then we were like hey we're gonna put steam heat in all of these well the Hagenbach Wallace Circus must have been on a bit of a budget because they were using an old obsolete train that still had wooden cars and oil lamps and wood-burning stoves all the stuff everything that made the Ashtabula disaster such a big deal years ago here it is again on this train as well so because of this the troop train just ripped through car after car and just setting them on fire just like kindling all the cars were on fire 30 seconds after the accident had happened many of the dead were unrecognizable due to the intense fire among the dead were such acts as Jenny Ward Todd of the Flying Wards and author... I don't know how to say this. I'm going to butcher this. Dierschix, I think. And Max Knightsborn of the great Dierschix Brothers, which was a strongman act. I'm sure I killed that. I'm sure that's not how that's said at all. So after all this, Alonzo Sargent, he, not only did he survive, but he was arrested and he did not testify. He was advised by his lawyers not to testify. 
However, he did give a statement in his report on the accident. And here is what he wrote. I was called shortly after 8 p.m. June 21st for Dead Hand Equipment West, engine 8485. Call 10.15 p.m. and left Kalamazoo, Michigan at 10.35 p.m. Had been up since 5 a.m. June 21st, deadheading from my home in Jackson on train number 41 and had little or no sleep during the day. Had had a couple of heavy meals before going out, realizing that I would not get anything more to eat until sometime the next morning. Leaving Kalamazoo, followed freight train to Michigan City Yard and stopped at signal near Center Street. Got proceed signal from someone on the ground, pulled up to Michigan City, stopped at standpipe and took water. While following the freight train, we stopped first between Dowagic and Pokagon on account signal at danger. Stopped again at Pokagon and Niles for some reason. This freight train being ahead. Leaving Michigan City had clear track to East Gary and there caught block of train ahead. Reduced speed but did not have to stop. As block cleared before I reached it, reduced speed going through Gary to comply with rules. And saw no more signals at caution or danger until approaching curve east of Ivanhoe where I found second signal east of wreck at caution. Was going about 25 miles per hour at this point, but did not reduce speed. As I expected, the next signal would probably clear before I got to it, or that I would see it if danger in time to stop. The wind was blowing very hard into the cab on my side, and I closed the window, which made the inside of the cab more comfortable. Before reaching the next signal, I dozed on account of heat in the cab and missed it not realizing what had happened to me until within 75 to 90 feet. I awoke suddenly and saw the trail marker light showing red on a train directly ahead of me. Not realizing the rear end of the train was so close, I started to make a service application, but before completing it, placed brake value handle into emergency position. We struck almost instantly after making the brake application. Don't know whether I closed the throttle or not, but did think I did. Looked to see where the fireman was and saw he was running toward the gangway. Did not see a fusee, hear a tornado, or see any other warning signal up to the time I saw the red tail lights. Wreck happened about 4.05 a.m. June 22nd. I stayed there for an hour or more assisting in getting people out of the wreckage. I had been in service with the Michigan Center Railroad Company for approximately 28 or 29 years, the last 16 of which I have been continuously employed as an engineer. I am in perfect physical condition, both well mental condition, and have had no illness within 25 or 30 years requiring the service of a doctor. There was nothing defective about the air brakes or other mechanism of the engine or train that I was operating, nor were there any defective condition of any of the signals or track upon which I was operating the best of my knowledge. The accident was due solely to the fact that I accidentally fell asleep, and I had no intent to injure any person nor was same done with malice, but solely through accident as foresaid. So it's a little dry, it's a little professional, it probably had to be, but he does take responsibility for it, he does own up to it. Sergeant and his fireman, Gustav Klaus, did not go to trial for the accident. Because of a deadlock jury, it resulted in a mistrial, and the men were not retried. Five days after the accident, 53 of the unidentifiable bodies were moved to a suburb of Chicago called Forest Park. They were buried in a mass grave, another mass grave, 
That must have been the big thing. Train wrecks, we don't know who they are. Mass grave. This mass grave was paid for by the Showman's League of America, which was founded in 1913, with Buffalo Bill Cody as its first president. They called this place Showman's Rest. Most of the people buried at Showman's Rest are marked as unidentified female or unidentified male. However, some are marked with Baldy, Smiley, and Four Horse Driver. Uh, they knew what they did. They knew their jobs, and they had some nicknames, but they didn't know who they were. Since the accident, only five victims of Showman's Rest have been identified. Showman's Rest is still used to this day. In fact, the Woodlawn Cemetery is not the only one. And that's where, I don't know if I mentioned that, but that is where... It's in Forest Park, but the cemetery is called Woodlawn Cemetery. There are a couple of other Showman's Rest across the country. They set some up. Still used to this day. There have been a couple of fanciful rumors surrounding the Hammond Circus train wreck and Showman's Rest. Some people have said that many of the animals escaped in the nearby forest. At Showman's Rest, there are elephant statues that surround the site. These statues have given rise to a story about elephants being buried where they died because they were too heavy to move. And others have claimed that Woodlawn Cemetery is haunted by ghost elephants. These are colorful stories. I, I like the one about them just burying elephants where they lie because they were too heavy. Which is something I think they actually did. Um, and a ghost elephant would be fantastic to see a ghost elephant. Especially in Chicago. But the problem with these uh, ghost stories, these ghost animal stories and these escaped animal stories is... None of the cars that were hit had animals in them. They were all just people. They were all just performers and employees of the circus. Why? Because the cars that held all of the animals were decoupled and left at Gary, Indiana to address another mechanical issue. So no animals were harmed in the making of this train wreck. It has a lot of fun stories, but they just couldn't be true, no matter how, how great they would be. But hey, if anyone out there has a ghost elephant story, send it in. We'll put it on the show. I want a ghost elephant story. We want to make that happen. Even if you make it up, I won't tell anybody. Just make it up. Send it in. That is the Ashtabula train disaster and the Hammond, Indiana circus train wreck. We're going to take a little break and we are going to be back with the local headlines.
And now we've got some local headlines, some wacky news, some strange news, some mysterious news from small towns. Current news. News that could become of an episode later. First up is uh, from CBS, from the CBSnews.com. I don't have an author, an author, uh, a writer for this article, but it is from CBS. Uh, headline is, while, seiz- while seizing thousands of artifacts from an Indiana home, FBI makes a staggering, quote-unquote, discovery. When the FBI showed up at Don Miller's home in Roar, Indiana in 2014 to seize part of his vast personal collection of artifacts, it was a shock for people who knew him. He was very beloved. He was very charismatic, former local reporter Liz Dykes said. Dykes interviewed the 90-year-old former engineer about his time in World War II, his missionary work in Haiti, and most of all, his huge collection of artifacts from around the world. The entire house is a museum. These things are everywhere, Dykes recounted. It's just mind-blowing. Miller willingly showed his collection to reporters, residents, and even local Boy Scout troops. So when the FBI came calling, she said, I wanted to know what they were looking for. There had to have been something. There was something the FBI hadn't talked about until now. When I first went into his house and saw the size of his collection, it was unlike anything we'd ever seen, Tim Carpenter, who heads the FBI's art crime unit, told CBS News correspondent Anna Werner. Not only me, but I didn't think anybody on the art crime team. FBI photos never before seen publicly give a glimpse of the collection. Some 42,000 items including pre-Columbian pottery, an Italian mosaic, and items from China, some that Miller labeled Chinese jewelry from 500 BC. Roughly half the collection was Native American, and the other half of the collection was from every corner of the globe, Carpenter said. But the problem? Carpenter said a lot of it had been illegally obtained. Miller admitted he had gone on digging expeditions in foreign countries and around the United States for decades in violation of antiquities laws. Did he understand that he obtained some things illegally? Werner asked. He did, Carpenter said, adding Miller had admitted to it. Miller eventually agreed to let the FBI seize some 5,000 artifacts so they could be returned to their countries of origin, but Carpenter said all of the FBI's careful planning couldn't prepare them for another, more disturbing discovery. Almost 2,000 human bones, Carpenter said. To the best of our knowledge right now, those 2,000 bones represent about 500 human beings. Nearly all of those human remains, he said, were also dug up from ancient Native American burial sites. It's very staggering, Carpenter said. Why would anybody have that many human bones? Werner asked. I don't know. I truly don't know, Carpenter said. Native American burial sites dating back thousands of years have been the source of fascination for archaeologists for decades. One old government film showed the excavation of an ancient Native American village in Alabama. Over time, many other sites have been looted by people seeking artifacts and even skeletons. This comes down to a basic human right, said Holly Cusack McVeigh, a professor of archaeology brought in by the FBI on the Miller case. We have to think about the context of who has been the target of grave robbing for centuries, whose ancestors have been collected for hobby. Cusack McVeigh said, and this comes down to racism, they aren't digging white graves. 
Experts determine the remains found at Miller's residence likely came from Native American tribes, including the Arikara in North Dakota. Tribal official Pete Coffey is working with the FBI to bring them home. All too often here, we have been treated as curiosities rather than a people here, Coffey said. They could very well be my own great-great-great-great-grandfather or grandmother, you know, that have been, I characterize it as being ripped out of the earth, you know. Miller died in 2015. We wanted to know what his widow thought of all this, so we went to Miller's home, where a Chinese terracotta warrior figure stood guard outside. I can't comment on the situation at this time, Miller's wife said, but Carpenter believes in his later years Miller understood the ramifications of what he did. I think he felt compelled to try and do the right thing and return these home, Carpenter said. Returning those Native American ancestors home is what Carpenter calls the FBI's most important mission now. You have to treat these people with dignity. These are human beings and people. It matters. It has meaning to people today. It has meaning to our children and their children, Carpenter said. So far, the FBI had already returned items from Miller's collection to several countries, including Cambodia, Canada, Colombia, and Mexico. A Chinese delegation will go to Indianapolis this week to claim artifacts. They have already returned some Native American ancestral remains to tribes in South Dakota region. They are planning a large-scale reparation of remains to other tribes in the coming months. So I uh, just now found another article about this that gives the name of the town. The original article I found just said a rural place in Indiana. But this apparently happened in Waldron, Indiana. This next story has been making the rounds. You might have seen it. Woman's supposed ghost sighting goes viral at Mass Market. Massachusetts Market, sorry. I found this. I'm getting this from NECN.com. It was written by Rob Michelson. A ghostly sighting at a Massachusetts market basket has created a stir as customers keep a lookout for the Victorian Air Spectre in the frozen food aisle. The grocery store in Wilmington was drawn into the spotlight this month after one of its employees posted about her ghost sighting in a local Facebook group. Christina Bush, who works in the store's bakery department, claims to have seen an older woman in Victoria area clothing a nightgown and hair cap standing in the frozen food aisle. Bush looked down, and when she looked back up, she said the woman had disappeared. She looked kind of melancholy and a little angry, so it was a creepy kind of sense. But it was something, Bush said Monday. She searched up and down the aisles to find the woman, but Bush said she was nowhere to be found. She believes the woman was a ghost and asked the Facebook group whether anyone else had a paranormal experience in her store. This is going to sound really strange, but has anyone seen a ghost in the Wilmington market basket, she wrote? The post attracted plenty of attention from both believers and skeptics, but others also claimed to have seen something ghostly in the grocery store, and it soon became the talk of the town. I had no idea it was going to blow up, she said. I mean, I just posted a random status on Facebook saying, hey, has anyone seen a ghost? Because I just wanted to connect with people. Customers at the store Monday were aware of the ghost story, and were on the hunt to see if they could catch a glimpse of the rumored visitor. We are looking. We are trying to find her, but we haven't seen her, said Tiffany from Bellarica. Maybe she is from the area. Maybe she is looking for someone. Maybe she has just not crossed over. Others are not sure that anything paranormal is happening in the store. I just don't believe in ghosts, said Don from Wilmington. I've been coming here for 35 years, and I haven't seen a ghost. U.S. Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts even tweeted about the local ghost story. Uh, here's his tweet. 
Apparently a ghost is hunting Wilmington Market Basket. I thought I only needed to worry about witches and ghouls in Salem. So that was exactly what you would expect from something like this. Market Basket officials say that, to their knowledge, their stores are free from ghostly visitors. As far as we know, all of our stores are ghost-free, said Justine Griffin, a spokesperson for the company. But if there's anything to it, she was probably attracted to our Victorian-era prices. Bush, she said, had never believed in ghosts. But this experience definitely changed her mind. She hopes to one day see the ghostly woman again, and maybe even strike up a conversation. I guess I would want her to come back, maybe, and, like, I could talk to her, she said. I don't know if you can talk to ghosts, but I think it would be cool to see what she is up to. So there's a couple of fun stories. Uh, the local headlines. Coming up, we have some more listener stories. So these listener stories are a little bit different than last week's. They aren't uh, personal experiences. They're both kind of mini stories of the bigger ones that we just did. They just, both of these are, hey, there's this thing in my town. Go look it up. You know. So the first one comes to us from Kevin of uh, You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. And he sent me this little tidbit. There's a town up here called Elmore, Ohio. It has a legend about a headless motorcyclist that shows up every March if you perform a ritual with your car. I feel like every town has some version of this story, but I bring it up because it's pretty popular among the locals to try to summon the motorcyclist's light. So that's what he told me. He gave me that on Twitter, and then I did a little searching, and I found a couple of websites that actually talk about the Elmore Ghost Light or the Elmore Motorcycle Light. And this is what I found out. In the town of Elmore, Ohio, about 15 miles southeast of Toledo, there's an odd anniversary on March 21st. Every year, people gather around and try to see the ghost light of a motorcycle. The story goes that after World War I, a soldier returned home and with his army pay, purchased a brand new motorcycle. He returned to Elmore to see his girl. When he showed up at her farmhouse on his shiny new bike, he found that she was now engaged to another man. Heartbroken and angry, he sped off on his bike. After coming around a curve right before a bridge, not far from the girl's home, he lost control of the bike and crashed into a ravine. He was found decapitated. Since then, many people have reported seeing a ghostly light come around the curve and then disappear halfway across the bridge. Then, in 1968, Richard Gill, a student of nearby Bowling Green University and a fan of the paranormal decided he was going to hunt for the ghost. Gil and a friend staked out the bridge, most likely the Muddy Creek Bridge. They brought with them a still camera, a video camera, and a tape recorder. Gil flashes car lights three times and then honk the horn three times, which seemed to be the way to call the ghost. Sure enough, a light came down from the farm and it whipped around the curve. Excited by this, Gil and his friend then tied a string across the bridge and called the ghost light again. They wanted to see if the light was attached to something physical. Again the light came, and the two found that the string was unbroken. It was time to up the ante. For the third experiment, Gil had his buddy stand on the bridge. 
This time, when the light came and went, Gil found his friend in the ditch, badly beaten. His friend didn't know what happened and only remembered seeing the light come towards him. After all of this, Gil had one last experiment to try. They parked his car at the end of the bridge, opposite from where the light came from. This time, as the light approached, they drove, trying to stay ahead of it. Eventually, the light closed in, passed through the car, and disappeared. It was after that that Gil kept on driving, probably all the way back to Bowling Green. And the next one is uh, from London Wambeam, I hope I did that right, who uh, does the Foothold Saga audiobook podcast. Uh, I don't have what they sent me. I believe it was a reply to a tweet and just trying to go through and finding that reply to read was daunting. But uh, London brought to my attention the Big Steve story of Larmy, Wyoming. Steve, Big Steve Long, was a Confederate soldier, gunfighter, outlaw, and lawman, in quotation marks. In 1866, he found his way into Larmy, Wyoming. Along with his half-brothers Ace and Con Moyer, the three men established a saloon. Not only did they start up the local watering hole, but Ace and Con both had hands in settling Larmy and set themselves up as Justice of the Peace and the Marshal. The brothers bestowed Big Steve with the title of Deputy Marshal, and the three ran the town from the back of the saloon. The saloon gained the nickname The Bucket of Blood. In the back, Long and his half-brothers were known to extort miners of their claims and ranchers of their deeds. When they would not comply, Long would shoot them dead and then claim it was self-defense, and the victim went to draw their weapon. Big Steve would go on to kill 13 men, some from the backroom dealings, and a handful of others when they objected to a crooked game of cards ran at the saloon. On October 16, 1868, Big Steve attempted to rob Raleigh Hardluck Harrison, a prospector. It didn't go well and Long was shot. He was only wounded and made it back home. Upon telling his wife what happened, she was incensed. His wife would then relay this information to one N.K. Broswell. Broswell had been trying to drum up support to take care of the three brothers. Now was his chance. Broswell rounded up a posse and they stormed the saloon. The three men were dragged up to an unfinished cabin where they were hanged. Steve Long's last words were, My mother always said that I would die with my shoes on. He then asked the mob to remove his boots and he was hung barefoot. I would like to thank London and Kevin once again for both those stories. As I mentioned, they both have podcasts, so I'm going to plug uh, Kevin. He does the Can't Make This Up History podcast. You can find them on Twitter at CMTU History and probably find their podcast wherever podcasts are found. London does the Foothold Saga audiobook podcast. You can find that on Twitter, too. Uh, let me tell you what it is real quick here. Uh, that is at the Foothold Saga. And if you want, you can find London at London DHW. And that will bring episode two to a close. I hope everyone enjoyed it. If you did, do a couple things for me. Maybe more than a couple. Uh, tell a friend. 
Word of mouth will help get more listeners, will help get this podcast out to more people. The other thing that will help it get out to more people is if you rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, especially if it is iTunes. That will help bubble the podcast to the top and more people will see it, which means more people might listen, all that great stuff. As always, go over to stscast.com, which is the website. You will find, under episodes, you'll find the show notes, uh, some pictures, links to all the sources that I use for this episode. You will find a submission form at the bottom of the page if you want to submit your own your own uh, listener story. If it's a good one, it will end up on a future episode. Also on the website, we have links to uh, some merch. You want a t-shirt, you want a cell phone case, you want a sticker, they're on there and you can find them. Also follow the show on social media. Uh, you can find it Facebook and Twitter have both the same username. That is at STScast. And after some, uh, some fighting with Instagram, I tried to sign up for Instagram and I couldn't find like a good username right off the top of the bat. So I just, you know, kind of stopped setting it up and they banned an account that didn't even have a username and had no post. So I don't know how I violated any rules when there literally was, I did posted nothing. So I had to use, uh, I actually used the email for my old podcast for Instagram so that I could get it up and running. So I told you all that to tell you this. I'm now on Instagram and that has a different username. You can find me there at stscast.gram. See what I did there? One more time, I would like to thank everyone for listening. I will be back in a couple of weeks with some more small town secrets. Remember, every town has a secret. What is yours? Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. 
Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.